0: lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited and presented by Chris Carr. Welcome to this month's Dry Cleaner cast. So um, things are a bit different this month. Uh, The tables have turned and I'm going to be interviewed on the show about my film, The Dry Cleaner. Now, before we begin... To get the most out of this episode, you probably, you'd be wise to watch the film first. It is only uh, 19 minutes, so it's not a huge commitment of time. Um, the film is a contemporary spy drama that I wrote and directed. And, um, yeah, I'm very excited to be releasing it and very excited to be talking about it. So on today's podcast, our guest host is Rob Wallace of the podcast Electric Shadows. Electric Shadows is a film review podcast and Rob was the script editor on my film The Dry Cleaner so he helped me polish the script and sort of get it into a ship order so we could shoot it. I'm very proud of the film. Um, if you haven't seen the trailer already um, check it out now. It's on YouTube. Now if you click on the image in your podcast app right now there will be a link to take you to the film uh where you can purchase it on amazon prime or itunes if you aren't able to click on the image and it take then it doesn't take you to a link for whatever reason then just go to www.drycleanercast.co.uk forward slash watch the film so that's www.drycleanercast.co.uk forward slash watch the film now i was just listening back to this interview there's just one thing i want to add so uh I don't know if anybody's ever been interviewed before, but sometimes your mind can just sort of wander and the things you meant to say and you completely forgot because uh, you get kind of caught up in the moment, is uh, you know, your bundle of nerves and various other things. So, what I want to just quickly say. First of all, I want to thank the producer of the film, The Dry Cleaner, because somehow, throughout the entire interview I did, I did not manage to man- uh, manage to mention Thomas Lumo. Now, Thomas Lumo, is one of the unsung heroes of The Dry Cleaner. He was my partner in crime, and he is helping me, actually, at the moment, co-write the follow-up to The Dry Cleaner, which is a TV series called The Great Game. We've written this very exciting pilot script together, and we're hoping that if the short film is a success... And generates enough interest that we will be able to sort of expand upon the, on the film and explore the world of the characters more in our show The Great Game. The Great Game is a contemporary spy drama and counter-terrorism thriller. So uh, if you watched a short film, you'll get a flavour of what we're trying to do. And obviously I'll explain more in detail in this interview. But I just want to say thank you so much to Thomas Lumo for all his efforts on this film. Because without his help, this film would never have been made. So thank you, Thomas. And I do apologise in advance for somehow not managing to mention you at all during the interview. So I'm very sorry about that. And on a personal note... Um, I just want to dedicate this particular episode to my father. Uh, My father passed away on the twenty-first of September, and it's been a very difficult time. And unfortunately, he did not live to see this film or hear this interview. This interview was actually recorded before his death, um, so I probably sound a bit more, a bit more chipper in that interview than I'm kind of feeling at the moment. But uh, I just want to dedicate this film to my father, Michael Carr, who unfortunately passed away. Without dad's interest in film and introducing me to films like James Bond, Blue Thunder, uh, The Hunt for October, this film probably never would have been made. So, um, you know, we always uh, sometimes take a lot of these things for granted and it's only when, when uh, disaster strikes that you get a chance to reflect on things and realise sort of sometimes how people influence you. Um, so this one's for you, dad. Thank you very much. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. So, before we begin, Rob, thank you so much for filling in for me today. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. I uh, well, I'm where to begin. I'm a, a film reviewer or critic uh, part time, and I'm co-host on the Electric Shadows podcast. Excellent. And also, you were the script editor
0: of my film, The Dry Cleaner. I was indeed. Which is what we're here to talk about today. So, um, yeah, the tables have turned, and I'm somehow now the guest of my own podcast. But that happens. So, <laughs> um, so here, so Rob's here today, kind of uh, filling in for me, uh, and he's going to interview me about um, about my film, The Dry Cleaner. So. Rob I'm going to hand it over to you so it's all all yours
1: okay let's uh, take it away Uh, okay Uh, well again Chris thank you for thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this yeah pleasure Um, do you uh, mind starting by telling us a bit about yourself and your background as a filmmaker and a creative yeah certainly so
0: um, I always find that. a weird, I always find it a difficult question to answer succinct, uh, succinctly but um, so um, I caught the film bug at a really early age when I was a kid I was just always watching films and TV and I was the kind of kid where my mum was telling me you're never going to do anything if you keep watching the television and I've somehow managed to find a way to hopefully make that <laughs> into something now um, and I used to watch this show called Stunt Masters that kind of at a young age showed me the kind of the technicality of filmmaking and it sort of showed me that actually this is a real thing because when you're watching a film as a kid you get sucked into the reality of the film you don't realize actually that there are people there making this happen so it planted that seed very early on um and it wasn't unfortunate till i was 17 years old that i actually finally got the opportunity to get hold of a camera um because my family were not particularly artistic so we didn't have cameras lying around the house and cameras were expensive so um Yeah, so it wasn't until I studied A-level media studies at Goddarmine College, which was a very, very rewarding experience, actually a very creative time for me. So I spent two years studying A-level media studies, uh, which actually got a lot of bad press back in the day. I remember in the 90s there were many newspaper articles saying, oh, media studies, children are just uh, sitting around watching television and writing about EastEnders. But in a way, it's actually like English literature, you know. It's the study of an art form. Exactly, exactly. And so many people just didn't get that. And so many people wanted to be outraged by media studies. But anyway, I found media studies incredibly fulfilling. Um, and it, it sort of helped me because I, I didn't exactly have the best academic, uh, not career, but best academic experiences prior to Goddard in college. And it gave me a lot of confidence. I met a lot of good friends. Um, and it just showed me that, you know, you can make things happen with a camera. Um, and that was really great. And then after... After college, uh, I actually took some time out and then, so I'm going, doing my life story here now, but uh, I took some time out. Um, uh, I ended up working in a photography store for a few years and got um, my head around photography and framing. And then I went to university and I went to what is now known as the University of Creative Arts in Farnham. When I was there, it was the Surrey Institute of Art and Design. And at one time, they had an extra C in the University of Creative Arts. And it was in, it was the Farnham University College of Creative Arts. And then they realized that acronym wasn't great. So, so they changed it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yes yeah, so I did uni um and then after uni um so after uni it was trying to build a career um so I ended up in some startup film production companies for a bit uh I joined startups because I felt that um I could get more hands-on experience a little bit faster so I didn't want to really be a runner because quite frankly I have been a runner and I'm a crap runner I'm really not very good at that kind of thing um but I was quite good at production management um and producing. Um, and then I went on to produce some films myself. So I produced a short film called Victims in 2011. And that was with, that was financed by Film London. And it has um, Hattie Morahan, who was in, um, is it the Bletchley, is it the Bletchley Circle? Is that the show? Yes. I think that's, that's it. Yeah. So Hattie, Hattie Morahan was in our film, film and she was lovely. Um, Hattie had a lot of experience in, in actually making films herself. Um, So she was really wonderful to work with. And we also had Brianna Corrigan, who was the lead singer from The Beautiful South. Um, And uh, so she was our other lead actress. It was great working with both of them. They were both lovely. Um, and then I went on to do a, a feature film, a micro-budget feature film, and what that means is that's made for less than a few hundred thousand pounds, because feature films usually... A low-budget feature films typically 50,000 to a 100,000 minimum, usually. Um, so I, I did that with Mountview Drama School uh, when we worked with their students, and, uh, and that was called How Not to Disappear Completely, and that was a really lovely experience as well. Um, and then I also worked with um, musician Thomas Dolby, um, famous for She Blinded Me With Science and those kind of things. And I did a – so I co-produced a music video with uh, a guy called Paul D. Um, and it's called The Toad Lickers. Um, and it was quite a crazy music video. And it got nominated for a Webby Award. Um, yeah, it got nominated for a Webby Award, which is pretty cool. Uh, apparently has an internet Oscar. I didn't know that. Um, and then, so away from production, then I, I want, you know, my goal has always been to direct. Um, and the reason I want to direct is because what appeals to me in storytelling and filmmaking in a way is that these are the good stories typically tell us something about ourself or about someone else and so i've always had a, a, an interest in people um for a lot of reasons i believe
1: you studied media studies with psychology
0: i did yeah yeah i did so um so yeah so i always wanted to understand because I, I without getting too personal i had uh you know there were some family issues when i was younger um my parents divorce was quite young and so i just there was a sense of me trying to understand why did that happen you know um, what led two people to having their you know relationship implode in the way that it did so um and on top of that, um, you know, I used to do a lot of customer services work when I was younger too, and you'd meet all sorts of strange people, and you just wanna understand what's what's motivating this behaviour so um so in a weird way for me um you know directing is a is a way to sort of do that professionally um you know the good plays, the good scripts are telling you something about someone. And I really enjoy those conversations with actors where we really get into the, into the motivations that underlie what's going on. Um And so, you know, as a director, I turned to theater for a while, uh, inspired by, uh, Sidney LeMay, who's a great film director. Um, I wanted to just take everything back to the basics because film is very logistical. Um, you know, some people uh, compare film to like, uh, declaring war on a country because you have like lots of people and lots of logistics and stuff like that and lots of plans. Um, and theater is almost, it can be the exact opposite. It could be literally just some people in a room, uh, and it means any concentrate on tech. So I studied theater for a while at a place called City Lit in Covent Garden. And I went on to direct some short plays. Um, and I went on to direct a play called Driven, uh, and that was at the Offcut Festival. And then I went on to direct another play called R. Jonathan, um, and that play itself went on to win the Kenneth Branagh new theatre award at the Windsor fringe and that was amazing to be a part of that um so yeah so then post all that is where the dry cleaner came about and i and i really wanted to just sort of make a film that kind of captured where i was at as a director that it was about it was in the genre that interests me because i love spy films i love those kind of uh, and those sort of Tom Clancy-ish, sort of the early Tom Clancy films like Hunt for October or Patriot Games, those kind of films, I kind of grew up on those. Um, and they're always about some contemporary geopolitical issue. And I always found that really exciting and interesting. Um, so the dry cleaner, in a sense, was my attempt to, at doing something on those lines.
1: <laughs> okay. So uh, for those who might not be in the know, what is dry cleaning?
0: Yeah. So dry cleaning is... I'm mean,
1: sorry, beyond the process of, you know... Take, oh, yeah, take, taking your clothes to uh. a. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's quite funny with this? Uh, so this podcast being the
0: Dry Cleaner cast. Um, if you Google, sorry, if you not Google, but if you, if you go into iTunes and put Dry Cleaner. Um, you tend to get all sorts of weird laundry podcasts come up, um, and I remember talking about
1: you know the best way to start yeah, your collar i 'd love to know
0: I must listen to one one day, but i 've also the the Twitter handle got uh, followed by some association of dry cleaners, which cracked me out but anyway but uh, so so dry cleaning obviously in the laundry sense is cleaning yourself, so that 's why they use this phrase inspired them um or spy lexicon so dry cleaning effectively is you want to be clean of surveillance before you go and meet your contact and why do you want to do that because if you have a covert source so let's say i'm running someone in the deep dark depths of like putin's inner circle now if if i'm running them in moscow then basically there's going to be an awful lot of people watching me as an mi6 officer and if I just go up to my guy who's in Putin's inner circle, hey, how you doing? You know, what's Putin up to? That guy is going to get in trouble. He's going to possibly get executed. And I'll get deported. I'll probably get roughed up a bit. But I'll, I'll get out of it okay. But my source won't. He will. she will get, you know, I don't know. They won't have a good time. Um, and in the Cold War in particular, you know, Oleg Penkovsky. He was executed. He was he was caught red-handed giving secrets to the West, and he went on to be executed. There's debate about how he got executed. Um, there are different stories. The classic way the Russians used to deal with a traitor was a bullet to the back of the head. So those are the stakes sometimes in espionage. So dry cleaning, effectively, is a technique where if you're going to go and meet your source, so you arrange a time, but you give yourself three to five hours before that meeting to see if you're being followed. And so what you do um, is you kind of, you predetermine the route you're going to go on. Um, So, you know, espionage, um, running spies is quite a complex affair, actually. Um, So you you pre-work out a route you're going to do. So, um, and on that route, you're going to have to come up with situations where you can stop and study those around you. And the thing is as well, you've got to do all this without looking like
1: you're doing that. Okay, because obviously if you're, yeah, especially, I guess, if you're not known as being an intelligence asset, mm-hmm. then obviously performing, you know, espionage would therefore give the game away.
0: Exactly. And I remember like Oleg Gordievsky in his book was saying that the one thing, even if you're suspected as being an intelligence officer, you don't want to do anything that confirms it because the people who are following you generally have limited resources. So if you bore them to tears, the likelihood of you constantly having surveillance on you. Um, it diminishes
1: so yeah so good spycraft is invisible spycraft
0: exactly exactly so how do you go about studying people around you without looking like you're studying people around you so you find natural ways to do it so let's say on my journey i'm going to go and buy a birthday card for someone now you don't just pick the first birthday card you find you go around the entire shop you even maybe talk to the assistant oh there's something up there i can't quite reach you know so you get them to help you and whilst all that's going on you're just looking around who's here who's in this room what do they look like then I've got a, I forgot, I haven't got any stamps or a pen for my birthday card. So shit, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go to a shop and buy that. Oh no. So now I go to that shop and wander around a bit. And who's with me? Who's around me? Is anybody from the previous shop there? There is someone from the previous shop. Okay. So now I go and buy a cup of coffee and write up my birthday card, put a stamp on it um and is that person now with me oh they are they brought friends too oh okay you know and one of them might be wearing a leather jacket look a bit like a hitman oh dear you know um i've got to go and post my birthday card now writing it up i go and post it oh the man with the leather jacket's following me now you know and it goes on like that so the rule of thumb is if you are being followed by someone you have bought the meeting because there's no point – if you do some weird spy craft, um, spy craft kabuki where you suddenly lose your tail, like they do in the movies, then it confirms you're some sort of intelligence asset. And so suddenly, you're going to have all the resources thrown at you as they study you under a microscope, but it makes it very hard for you to run your agent. So effectively, that's what dry cleaning is. You want to be clean of surveillance so you don't expose your source. So
1: this isn't the thriller thing of losing your tail. It's about identifying if you have a tail and yeah. therefore knowing to break off. Exactly
0: exactly and that's that's the thing and, and, and if you're not careful you know this is the difficulty between you know making fiction and and facts because in reality so I, I i um met a former surveillance officer he, he he and i had a afternoon wandering around london him showing me and confirming what i thought i knew about dry cleaning and one of the things he he mentioned was um that in reality, so in the scenario we have in my film, where we have a single asset who is dry cleaning before she meets with her uh, handler. In reality, the the intelligence. If, if you're so, it all ha- our film happens in the UK, so she's effectively on home turf. So our asset Lydia is on her, MI5's home turf. So MI5 would actually have a little covert team following Lydia to make sure she's not being followed, because they won't just rely on the asset. To, to basically um, dry clean, um, and I found that quite interesting. But the problem is, from a drama point of view, that kind of kills the thrill a little bit because you want to have that sense of danger.
1: Well, I guess if the danger culminates not in a chase but in the you know the asset yeah. our protagonist going home and having a cup of tea, yeah, then it does feel like a bit of anticlimax. It does. So, so
0: you have to take these. This is where artistic license comes in a little bit. So, you know, so um, I'm always. You know, we'll talk about this a bit later, but authenticity is very important to me and I try and put as much in as I can. But if the authenticity starts to get a bit anti-dramatic, then as a filmmaker and a storyteller, you've got to kind of, you've got to think, wow, yeah. So I I have my, you know, I have my limits of where I want to um be real and, and be fictional because if like Lydia then turned around and went John Woo and flew through the air of two Berettas and a hand going pow, 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 that's kind of like, no, that's the wrong kind of dramatic, you know? So it's, it's finding the way, the balance of how you want to do this thing, you know?
1: So I guess the, uh, the, the, the dry cleaners of film was partly about finding a way to, I guess, showcase the technique mm-hmm. and using it as part of a broader narrative in terms mm-hmm. of the, uh, the, the broadest themes and, um, sort of ethical dilemmas of, yeah. Being a spy, um, I think there are a couple of other different iterations of the Drakulian that you considered at different points. I mean, how did you yeah. arrive at this one? Yeah, so you know, um, writing
0: is not easy. <laughs> <laughs> to put it bluntly, writing is definitely not easy.
1: I've, uh, I've heard it said like, that uh, writing, a writer is someone, is, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than for other people.
0: Yeah, and um, and you know, I and. This has been a journey for me because, uh, as I said earlier, you know, I didn't have a particularly great academic experience at school. So what's quite interesting, when you start trying to write, it's amazing how the past negative experiences that somewhere in your subconscious kind of bubble up to the surface and suddenly you have what I call these sort of tapes of uh, negativity would ever come up so you got your greatest hits from like when a teacher said something in 1993 or something else in 1998 and it kind of comes up and you're kind of like oh my goodness maybe I shouldn't write you know because also being a writer you're kind of semi-declaring you know you're, you're joining the likes of like Shakespeare or Ernest Hemingway and I'm like and I'm definitely not Shakespeare or Ernest Hemingway by any means so it's sort of like it is quite intimidating so you have to overcome that so anyway so yeah we had we had so sort of two very different versions of the dry cleaner before it became the dry cleaner. So the first one was called Moscow rules. um, And it was obviously inspired by a little bit by Russian espionage. So the the basic story um, was that there was an office temp who was obsessed by spy books. You can imagine who that was inspired by. And in this situation, his girlfriend gets kidnapped and he decides to use what spy knowledge he has to try and find her and find who kidnapped her and through this process he kind of conjures up in his mind um one of the russian spies of the books he's
1: been reading so and this conjured up spy acts as a kind of guide so would <laughs> yeah. your would your avatar in this case have been someone like uh oleg Goudi- oleg, oh yeah, yeah oleg That's Goudi- exactly who was in my head
0: oleg Gordievsky. Yeah. Goudi- yeah. yeah and actually you know um I, I'll, I'll talk about oleg in a minute but um so yeah so that was it and it and i actually wrote i think it was a 20 page script i did quite a few drafts of it i kind of liked it it was fun but ultimately it wasn't realistic yeah, and it it, it was it was all right, but it wasn't great, you know. But it was, it was good to do. I still got it. I still got it somewhere. I um, guess the danger
1: when you're when you're writing about a temp and it, mm. when you're doing something like that, that is very much based in your own life and perhaps you know grounded in the in the the, mundan- the mundanities of your life. Mm. It doesn't feel a little bit water mitty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Not that it's necessarily a bad thing. But. No, no, no. Because in a way, as well, like I remember one of my writing tutors saying, "You
0: write what you wish you had said or wish you had done." You know, we all we all want to be the hero of our story, don't we? So it was sort of a way of doing that. Um, but ultimately, Moscow rules got put to bed. Uh, but dry cleaning did feature in it. Um, so the next iteration was what I call dry cleaner with a K. Um, it was originally the dry cleaner, but spelt with a K. Um, and that one was where George and Lydia were born. Um, uh, but it, this one was more Hitchcockian. So this one was more about, um, so the Lydia George dynamic was there. But one day Lydia goes to the safe house to meet George only to find him dead. He's been killed by some sort of assassins and she's been set up for it because suddenly um, the people in the adjoining building see her, the police arrive, they start giving out descriptions of this Middle Eastern woman and all that. And and so she ends up on the run from both the, uh, the law enforcement and the intelligence services and the assassins who killed George and she's trying to figure out who did it. Um... And that, that got to 15 exciting pages. Um, and it, again, it was fun. It had lots of exciting things or even actors. I thought would be great for certain
1: parts. So that's sort of, um, Olga Kurilenko is Lydia type yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. And it was it. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, so. It,
0: One thing you do, you should do as a writer is, um, submit your script for feedback to, you know, people whose taste you respect and opinion you respect, obviously. And, and one of the, here's one of the tips with this. Do not send your scripts to people who don't like the genre that you're interested in. Because one thing I learned through film education, Britain and British filmmaking, British film education has a big, um, bias towards, uh, British social realism so, so the but, Mike Lee and yeah and there's nothing wrong with that but that's sort of for some reason in film education that seems to be the direction that a lot of people try and push you towards as a filmmaker or at least it was when I was in film education this might be different now,
1: and I probably. think a lot of another issue is that a lot of filmmakers aren't necessarily equipped to make because that does require you know to some degree mm-hmm. some real life lived in experience exactly you know years ago I, I did an MA screenwriting course at the London Film School mm-hmm. of which uh, I believe Mike Lee is one of the patrons and yeah, one of the things that my my screenwriting tutor um, Brian Dunnigan did, you know, kind of at the time and I at the time I you know, I sort of took offense at this when he's going, you know, go out and actually have some life experience. Yeah. And yeah, I guess that's the issue when you're trying to you know, everybody's you know, writing short films about the single mother who's addicted to heroin and, you know, living in a council flat and isn't it all bleak and terrible and mm. and all of that is just coming from having watched these films as yeah. opposed to Yeah, And it it just doesn't ring true on any level.
0: Well, this is it. It's very hard as a young filmmaker to find your voice and find a voice and find authenticity in what you're trying to do. Um, And that old saying, write what you know – isn't very helpful when you're young because really there's not, you know, you haven't had a massive life experience yet. And that's, um, so, so yeah. So, so the, the moral of the story in the sense is if you send your spy script to somebody who only likes social realist drama, they're not going to get it. Um, and they're going to be very critical. Um, and so anyway, so I got quite a mixed response about the dry cleaner with a K and ultimately I just, it wasn't really hitting the right buttons. It was too actiony. It was too, it was too, um, too much about suspense i went down the wrong road i went down the suspense road i love hitchcock but it just wasn't providing any depth it was exciting um i'm sure it probably would have been quite a cool action film but ultimately i just don't think it
1: was very deep as you say i think um that's part of the issue of of, of dry cleaning things yeah. like dry cleaning are quite methodical and meticulous yeah. and you know i think i think your film does find a way to make it interesting in at least in the context of a short yeah. but yeah part of it is how protracted it is and The fact that you can't really rush through it. No. (laughs) And yet, again, it does not lend itself to the action sequence.
0: No, exactly. It is very hard. Screen time and real time are very hard things. It's very hard on screen to show well time, a lot of time passing and keeping it interesting. Um, So, yeah, so the dry clean of the K and the way it all played out just led me to a bit of soul searching. So I had a very depressing August, 2013. And in fact, um, I went to one of the key locations in the film, which is the alleyway. Uh, cause I, I had a feeling there's something in this, there's something in this, but, um, for whatever reason, both my ability and where I was as a writer, I just, it wasn't quite matching up with my expectations. And so I stood in that alleyway I just, I don't know, I just stood there, a little bit of silence for a while, sounds ridiculous, but this is what I did. Um, And I just knew there was something there. So I resolved, I'll carry on. And I did. And then it eventually led to to what I've made today.
1: (laughs) And and so in terms of, you know, when you got to a point where you thought this is something, this is the version of the story I want to tell, and it's at a point where I can actually start looking to pre-production. Yeah. Um yeah, how did you go about sort of casting and crewing? Yeah, so casting and crewing. So,
0: um casting is very hard, especially when you're on a low budget independent film like The Dry Cleaners. So, um over the years, through my, uh, we're, we're wonderful. We're very lucky. We're in London. I'm in London and it's an actors city. There's a lot of theatre here. And through some of my studies, I met a lot of great actors. And so, in fact, Justin um, was the first person I cast because um, I'd worked well with him at City Lit. Um, Justin, who plays George? Who plays George. yes. Yeah, sorry. So Justin plays George. Um, he's the intelligence officer. And yeah, Justin, when you look at him, does sort of have that sort of classic James Bond leading man look about him. And I felt like again, the reason why I cast somebody like um Justin, um, apart from his ability, the the look he has is a bit of a shorthand because in a short film we have very short space of time to introduce people and and so sometimes those first impressions matter. And so when we think about a British intelligence officer, George is kind of the archetype. Um, Obviously, uh, in reality, the intelligence services are very multicultural and stuff like that. But I felt at least because this feels about East and West, I had to make it obvious that he was the intelligence officer, and, um, and I just thought Justin was perfect in that regard. Um, Lydia, Lydia, I met through a recommendation from a drama, a drama teacher at Mount View Drama School, um, and in fact, uh, Amani who plays Amani Zardo, who plays Lydia, she was a former Mount View student, and we, um, I looked at a show we met. Um, and she came from sort of the right background of, of the Lydia character. And I felt she was perfect. She could have brought a, she had a, she was a very, she's a strong woman, um, but she has a sort of vulnerable side, which is what we want to explore with the film. And I thought she was perfect for it. Um Just, and then Kate who plays Nadida, who's, um, Lydia's uh, childhood friend. She's actually an actress I've wanted to work with for years, uh, Kate Victors. Um, and i actually known Kate since my early 20s because she actually um, came from my hometown and she studied at Godham in college. So I, I really, you know, really wanted to try and find the right role for Kate to work for on something. And I felt the dry cleaner, she was appropriate for for Nadida. Um, then for the Ahmed casting, we did a casting call-out. So we we went on the usual sort of websites, things like casting call. Pro and we had some auditions. Spotlight, yeah. Spotlight and all that, yeah. And we did a few auditions and he he um so so Pete who plays uh Ahmed, you know, again he had this sort of intensity to him, but a sort of leading man quality as well. Um and yeah, I thought he was perfect for the part really um uh, I've forgotten anybody oh oh gosh yes um so there's a very small part played by um a student I worked with once when I was working at Mount View so yes so Sasha Mendel plays Farag who's sort of the guy who introduces Ahmed at the end of the film and he's a brilliant act I really like him he's got a real lawyer-y quality about him, a very powerful distinctive voice and he just sort of fit very quickly that kind of um, you know, he, he was in a sense inspired by people from Hazib, Hill Tahiri, those kind of groups who, are, you know, those kind of individuals who, um,
1: are very polished and
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things we talked about, um, so with extremists, there's two, there's obviously the, there's a, um, um, uh, there's two sides to extremism. There's the people who provide the intellectual support who you know are academics they go and study law and things like that and then obviously there's the people who go out and commit acts of violence they're not always the same people you know um and so yeah so i so through some of the real life people i'd met in the past he fits that kind of that vibe and i thought sasha was perfect for that and sasha's gone on to be a comedian (laughs) bless him so he's he's doing really well um and then crewing crewing so you know i've built relationships with people over the years and josh bamber who was our director of photography had worked with a couple of years prior and in fact josh bless him was a camera assistant on a film i produced back in 2012 called the other woman um not the famous the other woman uh, the other one <laughs> yeah the other the, the other, other, other woman. woman um and and he 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 was uh you know um young guy with a lot of ambition and he had a good eye uh and really good taste in lighting and we talked a lot about um some of the references of films and things i liked and so um, what
1: were those references there's
0: loads to be honest but um i remember so obviously i wanted this to be very noiry or neo noiry um and weirdly the 6th season of the x-files the lighting of that was one reference So series 6 of the x-files i really liked the look of that season in particular um there was something about it, it was very filmic but it was it was sort of noiry but not over the top and it was quite colorful because obviously film noir is black and white then trying to do noir in color can be quite challenging hannibal the tv series really loved the look of that show and that was a huge influence less we we were when we were originally making the film, we were thinking of going down the road of the Hannibal grading as well. But when we came to grading the film, we just sort of found we didn't quite like it. And uh, so the actual, um, the final grade of the film is quite subtle and it actually just enhances what we did on the set. Um, then there's films like um The Ipcris File. Uh, so the, one of the rules of The Ipcris File was shooting through things because it gives a sense of being watched. So... um For a lot of the shots when Lydia's on the streets, uh, when we're not using stills photography, um, we're always filming through something to give that sense of being watched. Um, Manhunter's a reference for me. I love that film. Um,
1: And I know sort of the the works of Michael Mann. Yeah,
0: Michael. uh, to be honest with you, I think Michael Mann and the Scott brothers are, are in my DNA because they were the first directors I really got into when I was younger um i mean i grew up on michael mann production so like miami vice crime story uh heat honestly the seeing the film heat in 1996 for me i think was the very moment where i really really wanted to be a filmmaker and do those kind of movies i love heat it's a brilliant movie um but i will say as an addendum manhunter i think is my favorite michael mann movie for many reasons but um but heat's amazing um And so, yeah, so there's very much that, you know, what was great about the look of the Michael Mann and the Scott Brothers films, they use a lot of longer lenses um, to compress things and really control the image. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there seem to think to shoot a wide shot, you need to need to use a wide angle lens, not necessarily like Ridley Scott. I think the when he does his wide shots, he's using a 70 millimeter lens um and i and i'm always disappointed if i have to use a really wide lens occasionally i do use wide lenses on the on the dry cleaner there's some shots shot with a i think it was a 16 millimeter lens i think it was the widest we used to go super wide already long you know <laughs> it was kind of how we did things and all is the that time. partly
1: like a depth of focus issue it
0: is yeah so i mean basically the rule of thumb so wide angle lenses make exaggerate distances whilst uh, longer lenses compress distances um so for example if you want a really great tourist shot of you in front of some amazing location what you want to do is actually shoot that on a long lens so what you want to do is you find the so i did this years ago with some tourist on uh on uh hungerford bridge where they wanted to get like the vista of london behind them but if you do it where you stand next to them, your phone as it is the the london's too far away because it's a wide lens so what you do is you walk back obviously you could tell them what you're doing so obviously i think you're stealing their phone you walk back like not a particularly wide bridge <laughs> no so you walk back as much as you can which is about five or ten feet maximum. And then you zoom in as much as you can. Try and find the same frame again that you had with the wide, but you do it on the longer lens. And what you'll find is the backgrounds come in a lot closer. Uh, you obviously put them in focus, and that's it. You've got the perfect tour shot. I was like, boom, you know. And and that, that that's a little trick I use. And it's and that's exactly what you do in these films as well. <laughs> um, and it's yeah, I just prefer that aesthetic. Um, it just works for me. I, I don't can't explain in scientific terms, exactly why I find longer lenses work. I think it's just because I grew up on those Michael Mann, Ridley Scott films, and it's slightly in my subconscious, in my DNA. That's the kind of way I like things to look. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I say there is something about the uh, the technical aspect of it. That I guess that, that it's not quite how the human eye operates naturally. So no. you are immediately made aware of that there's something going on.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It really draws your attention. One thing as a filmmaker I really love, so sometimes people ask me, would you prefer film or theatre as a director? I prefer the experience of directing theatre. It's much more arty, it's much more fun and, you know, whilst film I prefer as a storyteller because I have much more control over what the audience do and don't see and be able to draw their attention to things. And um, Making lenses work for you is very much part of that toolkit as a
1: director. And was there much of a rehearsal period in the lead up to...
0: One of my big influences is Sidney LeMay and um, and through my theatre background. So I, I personally find rehearsal really useful because um, it helps take the nerves off on the first day of filming. Because first day of filming is always very complicated. And when you're on a low budget, obviously the first day of filming is still, you've got things you've got to achieve. On a feature film... We all know the first day of filming is not going to be the best. So, you know, you usually just do it and do some simple things, get everybody warmed up. So I haven't got time for that. So rehearsal is the technique I use to help get away, get the jitters away from the actors. So they're just a little bit familiar with the text. Um, And so the goal of rehearsal, I split it up into talk about the world of the reality of the world that we're showing. We also talk about then the characters And then we talk about the actual text itself. So with the work, so we had about a we had about a a week um, for rehearsal, and it wasn't obviously a full week. It was just like hours here and there over a week. Um, In that time, so Lydia, uh, sorry, Amani and uh, Kate, who played Lydia and Nadida, I managed to somehow, for a friend, um, organise a meet up with this Iraqi so it was a communist iraqi women's group um and uh known as i think the uh, i don't know we call them the iraqi women's groups i actually don't know the official title of this group but they were really lovely and they, they allowed us to spend a morning with them and what it is this group's full of basically iraqi expats who had to flee saddam or whatever or flee isis and so i just wanted um my two actresses just to Hang out with some real people for a bit you know um, and hang out with people who have lived you know in extreme circumstances who 've lived under totalitarianism or have lived under the fear of of uh, terrorist groups like isis and It was a real reality check for all of us it was very It was a very intense morning, a very emotional morning, and we met some very lovely people and there was one woman in particular who um, her daughter was still in Iraq and she was a doctor. Uh, so she was in Iraq in ISIS held territory and a doctor. So she was very vulnerable um, and it was, and her mother was just so distraught over this thing. And it was, it really brought home the reality of what we're doing and it helped us. I think it just makes us work harder because we don't want to short change the real people that we're talking about because, you know, I'm, you know, with this film, we are talking about, you know, we're talking about Middle Eastern terrorism. We're talking about the real people who get affected
1: by it. Um, I uh, guess one of the dangers with doing a genre piece is that mm-hmm. you can end up essentially just reducing these things to useful plot elements, or
0: exactly. And that's the thing I want to be really careful about, um, because the thing here's. So we'll talk about spy genre for a second and all that. So um, the problem about the the thing so the spy genre its about the fear of the other a little bit because basically espionage is usually if it's espionage focused on your country then it's usually being committed by somebody from another country um and and there's an element of that that can if you're not careful become a bit racist if you're not careful
1: now I mean, there's sort of an inherent xenophobia in there yeah
0: and that Xenophobia like, makes my skin crawl. And so, but I love the excitement and intrigue of spy films. So it's like, this is what I'm dealing with as a, as a filmmaker. It's like, well, how the hell do I, how the hell do you tell stories without becoming far right pieces of propaganda or whatever? Um, and so what you need is, in a sense, what I've learned is you need this sense of uh, duality. So for every negative character, so if you, if, if our film's about Middle Eastern inspired terrorism. So we're going to have, unfortunately, some, um, some terrorists from members of organizations like Al Qaeda and ISIS, and they may or may not come from an Islamic background. And I know
1: that you use a fictional, um, uh, We do. Yeah. So I create my own terrorist
0: organization. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and, um, and so what I need is a counterpoint to that character. And that's where Lydia, the character, was born. And she's inspired by real people, real people who are fighting extremists within their own community. Um, you know, because the greatest victims of Al-Qaeda and ISIS are actually Muslims. Um, Muslims are typically the targets, uh, especially in the Middle East. Um, and also the Islamic community is kind of, in a sense, going through a bit of a, not a no, civil war is the wrong word. A sort of a bit of a spiritual battle, um, because the extremists uh, who are members of Al Qaeda and ISIS they represent the far right of the Muslim world. They are the neo Nazis of the Muslim world. We know who the neo Nazis of our culture are. You know, They're, combat you know, seventeen or uh, sorry, combat eighteen, and all those horrible, yeah, the recognizable neo Nazis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the ones we the know Earth, exactly. who is. They are, and yeah. Muslims know who the neo Nazis their culture are. But the thing is, so. Joe Bloggs flies over from, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia to London. He's not necessarily going to know who is a a neo-Nazi and who's a regular individual. And vice versa, I flew to Saudi Arabia? It's not like I'm going to be able to immediately tell who the far right are of Saudi Arabia and who aren't. Um, And that's the problem we face with extremist terrorism today. And on top of that, what complicates this even further is the actions of the Islamic right – are used by the far-right of the West to justify their xenophobic outlook um and they basically every time there's a terrorist bombing and then there's a and then we find out that it was somebody doing it for isis or al-qaeda those far-right people say look look those
1: muslims we're telling you they're bad um, and then and sort of the demonization yeah. by the uh by the far-right exactly uh by dennis called, called the secular far-right yeah. ends up acting to, uh, towards radicalizing exactly yeah right and, and the thing is
0: so in it we get a bit political here but i mean the problem is these far-right narratives are becoming more and more popular today because the goal of extremists is to basically destroy the political norms of their target country. Um, they, want to, they basically want to divide people, and then they will come in and basically take over and reestablish a new norm under their worldview. And the last thing anybody wants, in my mind, is a world divided by race or by religion it would be fucking boring, for starters. Because the last thing I want to do is hang out with people who are exactly like me. <laughs> and it's just fucked up. It's horrible. Judging people by the colour of their skin or by their religion or by their hairstyle or by their fashion choices is such bullshit. It's ridiculous. It's the most pathetic way. It's the yeah, saying... Do not judge a book by its cover. That is so true today as it was when I heard that when I was like five. Um
1: yet so many people do judge books by their cover. So, uh, so yeah. I think, you know, um, to that extent, you've got Lydia as sort of the, uh, the co-protagonist of the film. Mm. Uh, acting as a very positive counterpoint to that as yeah. a, as kind of. And purposely so, yeah. And as you said, you know, based or drawn from, in some in some aspects, real life. Definitely. Lydia was inspired by quite a few people. And some of them sat... Well, none of them I can really
0: name. And some of them I actually don't know their names. So, I mean, how this all began. So, the dry cleaner as it is today it sort of started when I was living in Guildford. Um, and I did some f- freelance film work um, at the Surrey University. And somebody that I was filming in this uh, lecture theatre... And somebody had scratched into a desk, Libya forever. And this was at the time the Libyan civil war was kicking off. And that, and I've got a photograph of it somewhere. that image just really caught me. And I was like, wow. Um, and this is in my hometown as well. And it's like, wow, I'm, you know, we're so connected to everything. You know, no longer is some far-flung conflict just far away. It's here. You know, and um and I used to have a part time job selling phones in Guildford too. So I used to meet a lot of students and quite a few of my students were Middle Eastern nationals, um, from countries like Libya, Iran. I met a few people from Saudi Arabia, um, and then trying to think where else now, Egypt. And um so I there were some customers I got to know about. 'Cause they were my regulars, they'd come in and top up their phones, whatever, we'd chat a little bit. And then once I got to know is you know, that I could ask these questions. Because I was curious what was going on, because the at this time this is when the Arab Spring was happening. And I just wanted to I just wanted to understand what their point of view as people from those cultures were. And you get different lots of different answers. But majority of the people were telling me um, that obviously number one, the Arab Spring in all those countries was started by young people. And the goal was to have a just society and to be able to have freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of choice, um, freedom to be able to just, you know, live and dress and do what they want to do, you know? And, um, and the problem is like, certainly with the Egypt. So I met a man from Egypt and I, um, and this is when the Muslim brotherhood had just come into power. So you'd had the revolution, which disposed of the military led dictatorship, and the Muslim Brotherhood came in, and the thing is, the Muslim Brotherhood is a very kind of controversial organization because they basically have a very far right. They're basically the far right of of Egyptian society. They have a very they have a very um, black and white view and sort of uh, literalist view of their religion. And this, for young people, was not a positive. Uh, and it wasn't what they wanted out of the Arab Spring. And a year and a bit later, the Muslim Brotherhood were overthrown. And unfortunately, the military came back in. A lot of people in the previous government are now in the current government. But at that time, so I was talking to this guy from Egypt, and he was telling me about Salafism. And Salafism is, basically, it's this literalist interpretation of Islam. Um, they are the cranks of Islamic society, you know, um, and they have a very, very literalist worldview. And they actually, their goal as well, they're very anti-modernity. They want to take the world back to the time of the prophet. So they want the world to basically be as um, literally like the time that the prophet lived in, because in their mind, it makes it easier for them to follow the prophet as example. Because, and to reinforce. Yeah. Because technology and all the, different things in the world today make it harder for you to live like the prophet. Um, you know, because we don't live in the desert or, or if you do live in the desert, you could now have an iPhone or um, stuff like that, you know? Um, and they're scared of that. And the interesting thing is as well with the Western far right there, um, a lot of it is hooked into evangelical Christianity, which again is fearful of, of women's choices. It's fearful of modernity. um, You know, it's fearful of technology so there's a, you know, there's a lot of interesting things. So he really, really, um, enlightened me. I also did a year of Islamic studies back in 2004 as well, which gave me a, a bit of a dummy's guide to Islamic culture that was very helpful. And I stayed in touch with my tutor, uh, Dr. Rabio Lumo. And, um, and she was, you know, she was very inspirational as well. Um, and then on top of that, other students I met too. There was a lady from Iran who, um, was telling me about how you know she loved the freedoms that we have here. She loved the fact that she could just be who herself, whilst every time she had to go back to Iran, she had to cover her hair, she had to be very careful of her outward behaviour, um, and just felt very self-conscious while she was back home. And that's all because of um, the fact that that country is run by um, a Shia-led, intolerant government, basically. Uh, the Iranian government, unfortunately, isn't, very popular but they're very powerful um and the other thing another thing as well why i wanted a woman to be the protagonist because a lot of films when they do have a positive muslim character they always go for a man um and i think i don't know why uh maybe it's because there's a lot of women are, are very sacred in Islam and the Islamic world, and there's a lot of uh and I think maybe there's some people out there who are nervous about depicting women on screen for whatever reason and i and the thing is women are usually the first victims of religious intolerance um and um, and they're the ones who are the first to get their rights taken away. We've seen it in we're seeing it in America at the moment with the rise of evangelical Christian ideology, where women no longer are, are able to have a choice about abortion, about their body, restricting access to healthcare. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it's ridiculous, and that goes on in the Middle East as well. Um, and in some ways, you know, even worse sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. One uh, interesting yeah. thing I think about in mm-hmm. the context of the dry cleaner is that uh both uh Lydia and Harriet, who's George's handler, yes. are arguably, you could say, much more active characters than than George's. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, George yeah. George sort of largely serves as yeah. a sort of a mentor figure, and yeah. his uh, his dilemma is very much an ethical one; it's internal. Yeah. yeah. Whereas it's Harriet who you know has mm. to is is very his you know the sort of I'd say M like figure. I know there's yeah. sort of real life corollaries as well. Yeah. Uh, is uh, needs results yeah. needs a real you know tangible results. Yeah. And it's Lydia who's actually out there in the field, as it were, yeah. at you know in immediate risk. Yeah. And yeah, I am. Um, yeah, you were talking about. um uh, the idea that especially sort of in the Cold War with the bullet to the back of the head.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The sort of the threat and the stakes in this film are, you know, to some degree implied. Yeah. And, but I think there is a real resonance and real understanding, if not a knowledge, then I'd say by a lot of people, an appreciation, mm. however broad, of the sort of geopolitical, social landscape of all of this yeah. and, um, how that sort of changed in recent years. Um, so, uh, and I think there's also some more granular detail, like uh, some of the language in the film, um, things like um, CX reports yeah, yeah. is quite is quite technical and, you know, yeah. very specific and yeah. sort of inside baseball, as it were. Yeah. And I guess it's uh, sort of how, where did that come from and how do you, did you decide to make use of that yeah. in terms of... It's interesting,
0: actually, when you use technical language, it can divide people when you get feedback. Um, because there's this sort of weird... F- there's a fear of... Um, your audience don't understand something. But at the same time, this is ex- expectation not to spell everything out either. Um, and my, with the, using the CX report, so we don't explain what a CX report is, but the thing is, I think we know what a CX report is because we know how the characters react to it and we know it's important. Um, so, and for those who don't know what a CX report is, that's the name of the, um, so when MI6 produce product from all their intelligence, and then it gets distributed to their clients, which is, you know, the prime minister and, and the government. Um, and there's different levels of product and different codings of product that are given out depending on the security clearances. So the CX report is the name of the product. That's what MI6 produced. So C is for C, uh, the head of MI6. And I, for life, I can't remember what the X stands for, but somebody out there can tell me. Um and that's the name of the product that they produce. Um, now, I couldn't find one for a similar thing for MI5 or any of the other intelligence services. Um, and there is debate about exactly which intelligence services George works when I left it ambiguous in the end. <laughs> but in, in my mind... Um, you know, George was a you know was an MI6 agent actually running an operation at home, which typically they wouldn't do. But the only reason why I justified that is based on my research. With There was a book years ago called The Big Breach, um, written by a guy called Richard Tomlinson, and he was a, a former MI6 officer who felt he was unfairly dismissed, and he decided to write an expose, tell all about MI6. And guess who published it? A Russian publisher. Yeah, really. Yes, there's there's no better way to prove your yeah. professionalism yeah. than
1: by writing in it. <laughs>
0: A tell all expose Yeah. yeah and the thing is this book was brilliant i honestly obviously there's probably some bits that are not true but things like cx reports rang true and the thing is so i wanted to make i wanted to talk about i was interested because in richard tomlinson's book he talks about the pressures inside mi6 to produce so much material per month you know like any job we all have targets when i was in sales i had sales targets you know um and and i think the fact that George at the beginning of the film is getting a bit of a bollocking because he's behind on his targets is very relatable. And that and I, and for me, I wanted that to be the case. So even though we don't know what a CX report is, we do know it's important to George and we
1: know he's behind on his targets. We all have our equivalent CX reports.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, and, I, and, and that's the thing. So I think one of the key things for me was to explore the relatability of, of being an employee for the intelligence yeah. services. And that's again, like with the moral dilemma, I'm fascinated by moral dilemmas because there are so many in this world and I don't know the answer to every moral dilemma. I wish I did. Um, you know, and I, and I'm fascinated by that line between your professional self and then in a sense, your compassionate self. Uh, and that for George is very much his conflict. He sort of like instinctively knows this is dangerous. And he also knows in the reality of his profession that there might be only so far he can go for Lydia, but professionally he, in a sense, like the salesman has to, to close the deal. So he has to sort of say things that, that will, you know, make that more likely. Uh, even though as an individual, he doesn't want to do that. And so, I find that really interesting.
1: So that's sort of where all that sort of stuff comes from. I hope that your question. <laughs> that, that, that ambivalence reminds me actually a lot. Um, thank you again for lending it to me. I've been watching uh, the Sandbaggers. Oh yeah, the Sandbaggers is a fantastic show. Yeah. And the idea of there being this this figure who is sort of forced to uh, to, to, to get along to play the game, mm. and he doesn't feel entirely comfortable in doing that, and yeah. feels like, feels like he might be compromising or otherwise. Yeah. yeah. Um, the key to the film though seems does seem to be the the human relationships, whether it's between. Uh, George and Harriet, who's played, uh, Alice Patton. Yeah, Alice Patton's fantastic. Chris Patton's daughter, I did not know that at the time, yeah. but the, the last governor of Hong Kong.
0: But no, Alice was uh, honestly, I'll just quickly say, Alice was a pleasure to work with. Um, I, my biggest regret was we somehow did, because she came very late in the in the production of the film, it was not finding a way to inject her into the story some more. But even when I look at it now, I'm not quite sure, other than maybe there's the scene when George was at his computer, maybe Alice could have been there as well. But
1: ah I, I loved work of alice and i love that i really enjoyed her character um well one of the few changes i i noticed yeah. from the script to the finished version uh is uh, the scene where she doorstep where harriet doorsteps george oh that, yes that yeah. i guess had to go for pacing reasons and because at that point when the next scene they're already into the conversation yeah yeah what is it we shot that scene
0: um you know it was a very cold day <laughs> we were outdoors filming this doorstep scene. um so basically the scene is George is leaving his house to go to work and then suddenly boom his boss is in front of him and we had the one joke in the film where i think George says jesus christ in shock and then she just says to him not quite and I, and i, I love that line but it was it never you know um but we had to i had to, i just had to ditch that scene yeah because it was for pacing issues and also there's another scene where um, we see George going through his morning ritual, getting ready for work, and we can see he's troubled. He's sort of listening to the radio, which is telling us about this raid, this police raid in Paris, and, and he's sort of in, as a reference to the film Bullet in there. Um, has anybody seen the film Bullet? Have you seen Bullet? Oh, yes, of course. So, you know, that last shot. So, the end of the movie, uh, Um, What's his name? (laughs) Steve McQueen. I was going to call him Sean Connery. Steve McQueen has shot the bad guy. He's come home. He hangs up his gun. He's washing his face. And then suddenly he just looks himself in the mirror. I love that scene. I I think mirrors are overused now. But anyway. But there (laughs) is something about that moment that I was trying to recreate at the beginning of the film with George. And we did it. I thought we did a great job. But again, I had to cut it for pacing reasons. It just wasn't quite working. So...
1: There are some there are some neat touches in there, such as um, I noted the fact that uh, in the flashback scenes George is smoking an e-cigarette. Yes, but in the present day he's gone back to regular tobacco, yeah, which, yeah. He, which I kind of read as being a stress reaction.
0: It is exactly it was that was totally intentional.
1: Uh, even though, funny enough,
0: on the day of filming, like uh, just to say, are you sure about this e-cigarette? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you sure it's not going to look really ridiculous with
1: faking it? I was like, no, no, no. This is a reason for this. Um, I mean, e-cigarettes. I'm going to I might alienate some a certain distance, To my mind, do look slightly ridiculous. They like, do. They <laughs> but the, uh, the the I think the the, uh, the the possible health benefits outweigh the uh... well
0: the well vaping apparently is really bad for you. Um, there's some stuff coming it's like out popcorn about that. lung or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh my goodness. But anyway. Um. So yeah. So I, so the thing is, the people I know who smoke because I don't smoke. I don't like smoking. I don't endorse smoking. But I love in film watching people smoke. Total contradiction there. But there's something about smoking in film that just reminds me of Humphrey Bogart or something. I well, especially
1: it. in spy films, you know, whether yeah. it's, whether it's, you know, yeah. the uh, sort of the Le Carre yeah. meeting room yeah. with all the guys wearing yeah. that, you know, when they when the suit's sat around smoking, whether, you yeah. know, it was Bond, Bond with his...
0: Yeah. And it, it just shows a sense of brooding, what you're thinking. It's just something for you to do whilst you're contemplating something. And it's really... And I just love the way smoke hangs in the air. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so George, in the, in the past, when he was a bit more confident, a bit more relaxed, a bit less... Um, sort of stressed out is smoking his e-cigarette but in the present he is very stressed out so he's gone back to real cigarettes and the thing is that's inspired by real life too so the real life smokers I know who have gone to e-cigarettes
1: the second he gets
0: stressful the e-cigarette gets jettisoned and they're on the real things
1: again. And so the like, e-cigarette is more like sort of, it's like yeah. a, it's more like a coping means uh, you yeah, know, is yeah. like, and then obviously. Yeah, yeah. And also we've, cl- we did that. We also reflect that with clothing
0: choices as well. Like, um, so in the present, George is wearing clothes that are a bit more comforting and a bit more protective because he is in himself um you know he's very conflicted and feeling vulnerable whilst in the past i've dressed him in a slightly more confident way you know he looks more dapper and you know smoother um than he did in the present so that was another choice there
1: because obviously he's not he's not um as comfortable with what he's asking well what he's being asked to ask lydia to do yeah and um Yes, so what, sorry, how yes. did you conceive of how, into what depth do you go with these characters' backstories before sort of moving them into place? Even if yeah. you never, even if, you know, yeah. you, they, that never makes it to the screen in any form that, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So there's a lot of things. Um, so with Lydia, her backstory is very much inspired by the reality of people we'd met. Um, so, you know, she, she comes from a country that's, um, in a, currently in the middle of a civil war and obviously being a student in London um there's some tension for her looking back to the news whilst all these terrible things are going on at home you can just imagine what you must be feeling like so there's a lot of that with her and some of her family being killed um with with george we talked a bit about his past in the sense of like he um again like i think the book of richard tomlinson is very helpful for um for justin um and as was a book called Agents of Innocence by David Ignatius, which is one of my favourite spy books. Um, and that's a really good book about agent running and handling. And um, and yeah, so we talked a lot about like his past in MI6 and what he was up to. And I even conceived about how they originally met. Because we don't really talk about in the film how George and Lydia ever met. Because in a sense, that would almost have to be a film in itself to do a whole film about actually... Um, Finding someone to recruit them is quite complicated and and we just didn't have the screen time to do it. But I, I, in an earlier, earlier draft, I had this situation where George was undercover as a kind of like a photojournalist in the Middle East. Um, and he happened to hang out with the, uh, the Free Kuristan Army, which is the revolutionary group that Lydia was a part of. And then one of the members of the group, they capture They capture a child soldier, is what I had it as in the script. And one of the members of the group, a senior member of the group, was about to cross the line and kill this child soldier in cold blood, and Lydia stopped him. And George saw all this, and George thought, "Ah, oh, there's something there." And then he got to know her a bit, and then eventually, obviously, she came to London, and he reestablished the relationship, which is where we sort of, in a way, pick up with them in the safe house. And when I was flashbacks, is sort of one of those early um, meetings up with Lydia and George, is sort of asking her, "Will you work for me?" kind of thing, and she's conflicted about that, and understandably so.
1: And one of the shared reference points that you that does, uh, does make it into the film, uh, and Nick Slaughter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. The whole, so if obviously you need to watch the film, um, before
0: listening to this bit, but, um, so Nick Slaughter is the name of a lead character in a TV show that was known as Tropical Heat or Sweating Bullets. And in some territories, the show was just called Nick Slaughter. So Nick Slaughter is kind of this detective character who, um you know spent 3 it was a 3 season show um set in the you know in the uh, fictional uh, florida key and it was a very sort of magnum pi ish kind of show um with a sort of tongue in cheek humor about it and the thing is it was incredibly popular um in in europe um and apparently in the middle east and um anyway so this particular T V shows really sort of low budget T V show, unknown to the people who made it, had a massive significance. Um so the TV show became um kind of focal point for the anti Milosevic protesters in in um in Serbia. And so people who were protesting Milosevic would actually graffiti the walls around Serbia saying Nick Slaughter for president because they felt that Nick Slaughter was more honourable and would make a much better president than Slobodan Milosevic. And... Um, so why this is in my film is I wanted to – again, trying to humanise Lydia uh, from a storytelling point of view. I needed – you know, we needed something that made um, made her relatable to people of the West. And what better way to do that than popular culture? Because popular culture, a lot of the time, is the melting pot, you know. And so my my mother-in-law um, is from Iraq. And one day I was talking to her about Star Trek. We were talking about Star Trek. And unbeknown to me, Star Trek was incredibly popular – in 1960s, 70s Iraq. And I was like, wow, I was really blown away by that. But in a way, I'm not surprised too, because Star Trek has such a positive message and a universal message. Um, and so that conversation with, uh, Lydia in the film, I wanted her to, you know, there was some TV show that she had watched that somehow gives us a sense of who she is. And so for her, it was a detective story because she was sort of about righteousness. Um, and so I picked the Nick Slaughter show purely because I knew of its significance later on down the line in a sense of that it inspired a revolution. And, um, and I had also George's backstory at some point he had been in, in Serbia and Bosnia as an MI6 officer, um, like Richard Tomlinson, um, and had seen this graffiti and not really known what it is. Um, and then when Lydia mentions it, it kind of rings a bell and then only later on does he realize, oh yeah, I know what this show is, um, or what that's about. Uh, and it helps them build a bond too. And I think and that's the wonderful thing about popular culture. If it's done right, it can really help build bridges. And I think shows like Star Trek are really good for that.
1: Again, you so say it is this kind of shared... As you say, pop culture is kind of shared culture, the broadest, broadest accessible. Um, It's also, you imply that um, Lydia has a brother, had a brother already. Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, uh, spoiler, yeah, he definitely died. (laughs) Um, Because I wanted to, again, we wanted to show the reality of where she came from and the pain and suffering that her character. Because in in reality like i've met some very lovely people who have come from similar kind of backgrounds and they put on a really good front in the sense of that they they hide their pain well um and if if they confide in you you suddenly hear the things that they've witnessed and you're thinking my god how are you so together Um a really good friend of mine was a, a bosnian refugee and in the uh in the mid-2000s, he uh, his family had got a call from some UN investigation committee and they think they'd found his father's body. The last time my friends saw his father was probably 1993. And in about 2005, they found the mass grave that his father was in. And they ident- the family flew out and they could identify him because he was wearing the same clothes he wore the last time they saw him. I mean, that's the reality behind these things. And um, my friend, bless him, you know, he's he's a pretty together guy. He's, you know, he's doing well. He's got a, you know, good job, good family. And, and, you know, he's a bloody good friend of mine. But it's like, I just think, God, how would I react to that? How would I cope with something like that? Because there are people out there with a lot of real pain. And the thing is as well, back to the shittiness of the far right, It's people like my friend who are doing really well who are the targets of the far right, you know. Uh, My friend, uh, you know, was a refugee from the Bosnian War and uh, eventually he got British citizenship. He's built a business, he's employing people, he's he's a real positive thing. But, you know, if the far right get their way, he'd be one of many people deported. And that's really fucked up.
1: Yeah, I think it's about the the lack of empathy for...
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the thing in this, just to go off on a tangent, that's one of the big problems in this world today is a lack of empathy. I don't know quite how we got there, but that's something we definitely need to address. And the thing is as well, why why I prefer espionage story, stories to war stories, the way I put it, espionage is psychology, war is sociology. Um, you know, and the thing is, well, I guess
1: war is what happens when espionage doesn't work.
0: Yeah, because isn't the point of espionage is to identify risks before they become really big? Um, You know, like the James Bond, in a sense, we like to think that people out there like that, who sort out the villains before the villains manage to do what they do.
1: In reality, it's not that simple. Right? Espionage, when violence is not a ready component, is almost yeah. part of democracy. So, yeah. Sorry, not, yeah, sorry yeah. not democracy, diplomacy. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's an extension
0: of diplomacy, what a lot of people don't understand, because most of us understand espionage from movies and unfortunately there's a lot of really bad movies out there or a lot of movies that make choices that are more in service of cinema than they are in reality um and one of the things i learned Uh, through my research was that espionage is very much a function of diplomacy because like look at the negotiations with the ira uh in the uh, 90s that had to be done behind the scenes because it was too controversial to do in the public eye because you were dealing with terrorists you know and sometimes you do have to make deals with unpleasant people to to create a, a, a bigger peace um, you know and shockingly at the moment America is trying to do that with the Taliban I, I have real mixed feelings about that but that, that's a whole other story but it's like the fact that you know America might have spent all this time in in Afghanistan
1: toppling the Tar-up Taliban, only to give them the keys... Well, as they- having essentially installed them in the first place. Yeah, I know,
0: no, Well, I wouldn't... I don't know... Oh, That's talk- I mean, obviously, yeah. right.
1: Obviously supported them in... in uh, or, or supported yeah. the previous... Uh- well, it's, yeah, it's a very complicated picture, actually, The Afghanistan.
0: I don't think it's fair to say America... um installed the taliban because they didn't the taliban was um a, kind of came about because of the situation that um, the mess america left after allowing you know after um supporting the mujahideen against because the USSR Soviet, yeah. yeah and and then eventually a lot of infighting and, and then eventually the taliban became the sort of, rulers there and then eventually they allowed bin laden to hang out there and do his dirty business and then eventually it all kicked off um and ultimately, I think, you know, when I've talked to people about this, a lot of people are saying that, you know, um, they should never have gone in militarily. It would have been, you know, the Taliban would have done a deal with America to get, um, bin Laden. Um, but it was, but at that point, politically, America had to be seen to be doing something considering one of the worst terrorist attacks ever happened. And. It had its roots in
1: Afghanistan. Lydia has a line about unfinished and tribal, uh, unfinished tribal and religious history being at the heart of conflict in the Middle East. I think, and I was going to ask you very specifically about that, but I Mm. think maybe given the sort of broader conversation we're having, that... It's sort of not just – that. sort of obviously very integral to conflict throughout the globe. Mm. Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, of, you know, the current state of British politics, yeah. you could argue, is very much down to tribalism. Oh, yeah. Big time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the that's the problem. Humanity – big statement here – but I think humanity's biggest problem is we don't know – we aren't very good at coping with difference. Um on different levels, you know, like some people have a problem because somebody wears their hair pink in a professional environment or, I don't know, somebody has an Afro hairstyle in a professional environment. And they think, oh, that's unprofessional, which is ridiculous. I guess, yes,
1: I guess it's part mm. of it. God, not to go too um, sort of psycho, psycho, psycho psychoanalytical. I guess the idea of the, uh, this does not reflect me. Mm. This is something different from me and therefore it calls me into question mm. and therefore yeah. this is a bad thing. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think, you know, again, empathy is key to reflect is the uh, an understanding of common humanity.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll take it back to one experience I had When I was a kid, I used to get bullied because I had a big nose or some kids didn't like the sound of my voice because they perceived it as being posh. Um, so one day I was in the dining hall at my school talking to someone and some random guy just came up and hit me and said, "Oi, you're posh. And then he ran away. I'd never seen him before in my life. Never seen him again. <laughs> it was like, he was a day player in my life. Um, and like, who the hell was he? Who was he to judge me? And why was he able to then inflict an act of violence against me because of what he felt about me? And then again, like with my nose. So I, I was uh, ridiculed for having a big nose and my, I inherited the nickname Hagger from Hagger, the Viking, you know, and people are like, Oh, Hagger, you know, and that was like that for four years and because my nose is different. So what? You know, but for some people that's a real big issue. Um and, and it's interesting play I think playgrounds are really interesting metaphor for the world because I don't think the world really has progressed beyond the playground, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, we just yeah, we just stop yeah. Well, I know, actually I about to say well say we stop with the taunts, but that's not entirely true. Uh, the film is dedicated and uh, and this is not I'm not quoting this exactly to those who work in the shadows mm. trying to stop the continued violence. Yeah. Do you sort of say a bit about that? Yeah. You know,
0: regular listeners to the podcast will probably know some of the people in the shadows. You know, people like Fahana Kazi or uh, Yaya Fanousi, people like Angie Gad. You know, they're Muslims who have been fighting Islamic extremism and terrorism throughout their careers and um it's taken them into dangerous places, you know. I mean like uh, Yaya had to go to Afghanistan from what I understand. Uh I don't I'm not I don't know where Fahana went, but she did go to places, she just can't tell me. Um Angie, you know, runs a a brilliant website that tackles um head on extremist propaganda, you know. Um, and on top of that, there are, um, you know, non-Muslim intelligence officers I've met as well who are on the front line and risk their lives trying to stop these these terrible atrocities. Um, and on top of that, there are people, even just ordinary Muslims in the Muslim community who've been battling the rise of the Muslim right in their community at great risk themselves. People like Sarah Khan, who wrote the book Battle for British Islam. Um, you know, after writing that book, she got death threats and all sorts of stuff. I had to go into police protect- protection for a while from my understanding. Um, then you've got the battle against the Western far-right, you know. Um, you know, we've had journalists getting beaten up, people being shot. Um, these are violent individuals that people are sticking their neck out and going up against. Um, so it's it, that, in a sense, yeah, it's those people who are trying to stop the rise of these very bad people in whatever way they can. Some, there is some Islamic saying, and I'm really, because I've, I've got such a, a a terrible memory, and I'm not a particular academic person, but when I was studying Islam, I remember once there was some saying about, um, if there's a fire, it's better to be the, um, an ant carrying water than not. You know, I think what well, the point of that is, it doesn't matter how small your effort is, as long as you're trying to put out the fire, you're contributing, you know? yeah, you're contributing, and, and I think that's important. I think all of us in our own way we don't have to be spies we don't have to join the military in some ways that might not necessarily be helpful doing those things but all of us in our own little way um can fight extremism can fight injustices um and i guess it's just up to us to find out the way that we wish to do that in our lives um the way that
1: we are best individually positioned to to contribute exactly because you know
0: again it's very i'm always i'm fascinated by and and a bit disturbed by external judgments um and one thing I would say as an addendum to what we've just said is, I wouldn't want people to feel pressured or pressure other pe- pressure other people into thinking they have to do things in a certain way because they do it that way, you know. Because uh, I've in in political movements I've joined in the past, um, you know, sometimes our pressures where people think, "Oh, you should be out. There. Why are you not at that protest today?" Well, I've you know, I've got to have. Some surgery, or my mum's ill, and they're like, "Oh, you're just not doing good enough." Oh, you're, you know, and it, it, it,
1: that mentality really winds me up. So, <laughs> um, with with the dry cleaner, um, mm. sort of, sh- it's left very open ended mm. um, in terms of Lydia's uh, sort of what the next step will be. Mm. Uh, if, in that way, it feels like a prelude to a much larger narrative. Yeah. Um, did you conceive it as?
0: Yeah, so I mean,
1: because I'm a a
0: novice writer, um, in a sense, I I have a massive story I want to tell with this. um, And I've been trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to tell it. So originally, when I was writing The Dry Cleaner, um, I could sort of foresee it as a standalone feature film. But as, but looking at the world around us now, I felt that a story just focused on Islamic terrorism was not the right story to tell. But there was still a bit of the, bit of this story that I did want to tell. But I also wanted to look at the rise of the far right and how the far right and the Islamic right, uh, the Western far right and the Islamic far right kind of feed off each other. So what I am doing at the moment, um, and I've had, you know, help from yourself and, and some others, um, I'm trying to write a television series. Um, I see it at the moment as a six part show and I've called it the great game because uh, I can't think of a better title, but I thought that's a pretty good title. We'll see what happens, but it's all about, so it is a very much um, the story you've seen in the short film, um, but bigger. And on top of that, we also look at um, far right plots um, and we look at how they kind of relate to each other too. So, uh, and I think it's very much a, a story of our time. Um, you know, and it, and, and I'm about to go out to meet, uh, you know, to talk to some producers and broadcasters about this topic. Um, you know, and if there is anybody actually, you know, if there's anybody listening to the interview who thinks, oh, that sounds really good. Um, and they are a producer of a track record, then get in touch because, um, you know, I need some allies right now, um, to kind of get this story told.
1: And yeah, I know that they can get in touch, uh, your website, yes, www.chriscar.co.uk. Yeah. I know that you're sort of very busy at the moment between, beyond this sort of the great game, you've got other. TV series ideas and, and I think yeah. something like six feature film ideas you're developing. Yes, yes I have. Uh, yeah. Also expensive. do your your freelance your web-based video projects yeah. Yeah. and the podcast, of course, the yeah. dry cleaning podcast. Yeah. That I'm assuming a lot of people have got to hear through that. Yes. Yeah. Um and I guess I guess before we finish off mm. is there anything else you'd like to discuss about whether whether or not it's um it is the uh, sort of the current polit- uh, political climate or filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, for example, the I I realized I didn't ask about the score for the film. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, god,
0: if anything <laughs> I'm really proud of what we did with the music in this film. Um, you know, Andy Bird or Andrew R. Bird is his professional name because there are apparently a few Andy Birds out there, but, um, Andy did such an amazing job with the music. Um, and you know, it, the music obviously was there to enhance, um, emotions and to create, I wanted it to create tension. I wanted to say, like, one of the things I love about the film Manhunter. Um is there's this sort of brooding tension all the way through, and then there's a release at the end in our film, I had to use the music as the release for our tension um so that 's why the end music's quite you know empowering, uplifting, and all that and if you listen to the whole music, some of the lyrics will make sense after a while <laughs> <laughs> um and because we need, we built all this tension, then you have to release it otherwise oh, well, you piss people off, so we use the music to do that um and just andy's sensibility The andy is in a sense, my musical soulmate. We, we had very similar references and points of view about music. Um, and on top of that, Andy is just such a master of the craft and was so good at being able to try out different things. Um, and if you haven't seen the film yet, which you really should, um, you already heard Andy's music, because his music top and tails this podcast. Um, and Andy even created a, better, a special track in the writing process of The Dry Cleaner called Streetlights, which um, I'll include at the end of the episode. Um, it was very helpful th- for me in thinking through the opening sequence and other things, too. So, yeah, yeah, Andy's brand.
1: If any of the listeners haven't seen uh, the, the Dry Cleaner, mm-hmm. where can they? Uh, so if you want to watch the film you can actually if you click
0: on the image in your podcast app of the podcast now i'll include a link um where you can literally go straight to straight to our website that will then give you a list of all the platforms it's available and then you can pick your preferred platform
1: well uh chris thank you very
0: much for talking with me today well rob thank you so much it's been really nice to talk about it um i suppose one last note um more on a filmmaking level you know as we said earlier writing is hard there may be people out there listening who are maybe where i was at in the summer of 2013 if you really believe in a, a project that you have um you know and it's not quite working um don't number one don't give up number two just look at what inspired it in the first place and really dig deep on that you know um and um, and hopefully it will it will come to something that in the future
1: will really pay off good advice and a great place to end it, i think
0: so i just want to say lastly a huge thank you to rob wallace today for joining me on the podcast and interviewing me about the film if you want to hear more from rob you can check out his podcast that he co-hosts with rob daniel and it's called the electric shadows podcast and it's available on all your favorite apps and in that podcast rob and rob review all sorts of amazing new films that come out and have some very good discussions about cinema. They're both big cinephiles and each episode you kind of feel like you walk away a little bit more knowledgeable about cinema. So, thank you so much Rob for uh, interviewing me on this podcast. And um just for a little bit of difference today as I mentioned earlier in the interview, I'm uh, going to be the podcast will play out with some music that was composed by Andrew R. Bird, who is the composer of the film. It's called Street lights um and this is one of the initial pieces of music in the early development of the film the dry cleaner so we're going to play out on that today so uh, i hope you enjoy it and thank you very much